Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Would you please uh, find your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 2. We just started a series in Hebrews and we're continuing this evening. It's page 1001 in the Black Bibles or 1188 if you have one of the blue large print. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. Let's listen to God's glorious words to us. For it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. And putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Do you find your Bibles again and turn back to Hebrews chapter 2? Now, if I was to ask you what gives you confidence for the future, what would you say? Have a think now. What gives you confidence for the future?
probably lots of different uh, answers in this room, aren't there? It might be, I know, because the past has actually gone pretty well so far, or because, I don't know, your, your bank balance feels okay, or but because of the people around you, uh, or because you know your own skills and qualities, or actually, perhaps that question terrifies you because you have no confidence for the future at all. The thing is, I think we often leave God out of the picture when we're thinking about the future. We can leave him out of the short term, and we can even leave him out of the the big term future, even eternity. And it can be hard to remember, oh, oh yeah, God is in control. God's got it in hand. God's got the future sorted. But here in Hebrews, that's exactly what the writer wants us to remember. But not just about the short term. He wants to point the eyes of our hearts to the long term. To how God has got us from from here to the end. To death and even beyond it. If you remember last week, uh, we saw he was getting us to pay much closer attention to the Son. Why? So we didn't neglect our salvation. But the word salvation, it can feel a bit of a general word, can't it? How are we meant to understand that salvation, to be saved? What is it? Well, the writer in our passage today starts by framing this salvation for us and then, and then by getting us to see how God's got it utterly sorted for us. Uh, and he first of all frames this salvation as, as a blueprint it's what life could have been. That's what salvation is. He, he shows us it's this. It's the world we all want, but don't have. The world we all want, but don't have. Verse 5. Now, it's not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're to speaking. There it is, the world to come. That's salvation. But what's it like? Well, then he, he then quotes Psalm 8 to give us that blueprint. Verse 6, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Here's the blueprint. God has put humanity on earth to be crowned with glory and honor, ruling the earth. Now, this, this ruling of the earth isn't some kind of, you know, destroy the earth because I can. You know, we, we think of having everything under our feet as a bad thing, don't we? Like, like a despot who, who has some poor person under their foot. But no way, that's not what this means. It, instead, it's a symbol of everything working in the world as it should. Just look at verse 8. The writer explains, Now putting, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Nothing left outside his control. So it's a way of saying there won't be any enemies of people anymore. All that's wrong with the world is defeated. That means there won't be any disease or sickness, no pain or hurt, no sin or death, no evil forces or the devil. Why? Because everything is under our feet. We're in control of the lot. Humans, creation, God. We're in harmony as God intended it to be. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a picture of the world we all want. But it's also the world we don't have. End of verse 8. At present, 
we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Life is not yet like Psalm 8 portrays it to be. Mankind is not yet crowned with glory and honour, with everything in subjection under our feet. This is what was promised to Adam, but he failed, and we all failed with him. Salvation, it's, it's the world we all want, but we don't have. We haven't peaked yet in a way. We can't seem to get where we want to be. Our everyday experiences just show it, don't they? We have fear. We have worry and grief. We experience pain. We, we're hurt by others and end up hurting the ones we love most. We, you know, we can't even control our tempers, let alone the great enemies of sin and, and death and the devil. It's the deep frustration of life, isn't it? Things are not as uh, they should be. Whether you're a Christian here or not, we can all agree on that. Our relationships aren't as we'd love them to be. Our bodies don't work as we'd want them to. Our our minds seem to fight with us and the, the things we just can't control seem to be against us. But yet there's this blueprint, there's this glorious vision of humanity that God has written into the words of Scripture, written as if real right now. So there's this world we all want but don't have, this world to come. Well, how do we get there? What's God doing about it? How's it going to happen? Well, now the writer turns the focus. And before he's, he's been speaking of him, verse 8, now putting everything in subjection to him. But that him is a, is a shorthand for us all. It's man, it's mankind in, verse, in, in Psalm 8. But it could mean an individual. And in verse 9, we see the shift to an individual because he spells it out. But verse, uh, verse 9, but we see him, and this time he defines it, namely Jesus. And with Jesus, we're going to see the way. We're going to see the way to the world we all want. The writer's going to open up this, this theme that actually is going to give us pages and pages of glorious truth. And it's this. The son's suffering way is the saving way. The son's suffering way is the saving way. If we want to get to the world we all want, then it's through him, namely Jesus. Because he's the one who is fulfilling Psalm 8. Verse 9, but we, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Jesus has followed the path of Psalm 8. He was made lower. He took on flesh and for a little while was a a servant on earth. But now he is crowned with glory and honor. That's what chapter 1 was all about. If you remember the last few weeks, his crowning. The son seated in the heavenly realms. The son who's to inherit the world. The son who reigns forever. Jesus, he's the true human. He's the better Adam because he's the one who fulfills Psalm 8. But there are two big shocks in all of this. Firstly, Jesus seems to be alone. He's the only one who is lower and has now been exalted. Surely Psalm 8 has, has failed since it was meant to be about more than one, about a whole people. And then there's a second shock. And it's about how all this comes about. 
Verse 9, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Then in verse 10, we see that God makes the founder of their salvation perfect through what? Through suffering. The glorified one, the one with a superior name and nature, the son. But he had to go through suffering and death. It feels like this is not how it should be. You know, the victor should just glide to the top. The the warrior should conquer his enemies in style, crushing them in power. Not weakness, not suffering, not death. But somehow for the writer, these, these two shocks that Jesus is alone and his suffering seem to start to work together. Verse 9, it, it, it says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This death was for people. And then verse 10, he says, in bringing many sons to glory. Somehow this death is to bring people to glory. This death is instead of others so that they might reach salvation too. Jesus being alone is a temporary thing and his death is making that so. The son's suffering way is the saving way. No wonder he's called in verse 10 the founder. Or as another translation puts it, the pioneer of our salvation. Psalm 8 is being fulfilled for people through Jesus. He's made lower and he's crowned so that we might be crowned through him. There is a way to the world we all want and it's the son's suffering way. But how? How is suffering the way? You may be thinking, you know, I know you Christians always talk about Jesus dying, but really? Why does it matter? What's it got to do with me? Or perhaps as a Christian, sometimes you can feel, it feels all a bit flimsy. Is Jesus' death really the way? Well, God in the following verses starts to open this up to us, giving us three glorious views on Jesus' suffering. Three incredible views to show how secure what Jesus is up to really is. It's God-purposed, it's family-focused, and it's death-destroying. So firstly, the the son's suffering way, it's God's purpose, verse 10. For it's fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now just notice, who's doing it all in this verse? takes a bit of a second read, doesn't it? But it's the one for whom and by whom all things exist. It's God himself doing uh, the work in this verse. It's God the Father. He has purposed it all. It was fitting for suffering to be the way because God has said it so. God the Father and God the Son knew this was the way. This was the way purpose before time began. Weakness and suffering was the journey to glory. Now, for for Jesus to be made perfect here, that's not talking about moral perfection. The writer makes that clear later on by saying Jesus was, was always without sin. No, being made perfect here is the idea of being qualified for the job. The way to be qualified was to bring, to bring people to glory, the writer is saying, is through death. God's way is a suffering way. You know, weakness and suffering aren't unbecoming of the king here. They, they qualify him as king. 
What happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago, the Son of God, it was not an accident. It wasn't a fluke of history that a guy in Israel was arrested and crucified by the Romans. It's not something that just happened and then some of his followers tried to turn it into a bit of a religion. No way, this is far bigger than that. The creator of the universe had seen it fitting for this to happen. The all-powerful, all-knowing, holy one determined that his son would be strung up on a cross. He wanted you to be saved so much that he purposed it. He purposed his son to bring many sons to glory through death. That's how much he wanted salvation for his people. As you remember the cross, as you read of Jesus' death in the Gospels and picture it in your mind's eye, don't divorce it from, from God's. See instead God's eternal love in making it happen. And the Son doing it utterly willingly. He's not forced there by the Father. It's the, the Father, the Son and the Spirit at work together to bring about your salvation, our salvation. The son's suffering, it's no accident, it's God's purposed for you. But it's also family focused. Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. And in verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. At the heart of Jesus' suffering is the fact that he's doing it for those he calls brothers and sisters. There's an extraordinary unity between who Jesus is and who he's going to die for. He can suffer for us because he's one of us. Verse 11, we have the one origin. Now this, this might be referring back to verse 10. The fact that everything is, is for God and by God. Our, our one origin, it, it's found in the deep, purposes of God. God has called Christ and God has called many others and so Christ can call us our brothers and sisters. Or perhaps the the one origin is actually our human nature. We see that later on in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And then verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus took on flesh. He took on muscle and blood. He took on a brain, a mind, a soul. He became like us in every respect. There's a unity. We have the same origin in that, in that sense. I'm not sure which way one origin points, but in a sense it doesn't matter because both are true. Both are in this passage and actually the key thing is that word one. One. Jesus the sanctifier and us the ones he sanctifies, we are one. Jesus has come so, so close to the ones he's came to save. He is spiritually connected through the purposes of God. He is physically connected through the the same common human nature. So amazingly, just, just check out the language that we are called. Verse 10, we are called sons. Just think, after the writer has spent so long talking about how amazing the son is, we get to have the same name. 
Whether we're men or women, we have a similar name to Jesus. We're sons. And then we're brothers. The word is for brothers and sisters. We're siblings. Jesus, the the king of all, calls those he came to save siblings. His family. The writer proves it from Psalm 22. I will tell of your, your name to my brothers. It's a psalm all about the Messiah dying and then rising to glory. And in glory he called those with him, his siblings, his brothers and sisters. And then the writer turns to Isaiah and sees how the faith of Isaiah, the one trusting in God, points us to Jesus. And what was Isaiah given? Children. End of verse 13. Behold, I and the children God has given me. What amazing language. Jesus' suffering way, it's, it's family focused. There's a deep love and closeness of Jesus to his people, to us. If you know Christ, then may you feel the beauty of this. The Most High Son takes us, his, his little children, into his arms. The one who is the exact imprint of God's me, William Allen, his, his brother, his child. What extraordinary gentleness and love. Suffering is the way because Jesus is doing it for his family. His family who are wrapped up into this world of sin and death. He hasn't left us. He hasn't ignored our plight. Instead, he's become one of us. He's joined us. Perhaps this evening, God's love for you feels distant. Well, let this truth start to sink in. God first loved us. Christ came not because we'd earned his love, but because he decided to call us his family. The son's suffering, it's family focused. And finally, it's death destroying. Death destroying. Now, in verse 14, the writer gets onto the results of Jesus' death, this suffering way. What did it actually achieve? Well, verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, and here we go, here are two things that he did. One, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And then two, to deliver all those who through fear of death was subject to lifelong slavery. Two incredible things here he dies to do. Firstly, he dies to destroy the devil. But notice how the devil's described. He's described as the one who has the power of death. The devil, through his manipulation of Eve, brought, brought death into the world. But he also is the one who uses it as a weapon. He uses it to bring fear to us. He uses it to accuse. So to destroy the devil and his power, well, Jesus must have destroyed his weapon, death itself. And that second aspect, he's delivered us from the fear of death. Death sits over us as a a looming execution. It, It came into the world as God's punishment for our rejection of him, the God of life. So as it sits there at the end of life, and we've been reminded of it this weekend, haven't we? It sits there at the end of life. No wonder it brings fear to many. No wonder it brings slavery. 
It binds us, it taunts us. When, whatever we try and do, actually it's worthless because death brings an end to it all. And yet Jesus' death, we're told, frees us from that slavery. It frees us from that fear. Again, well, how can that be? Well, it must be because Jesus has destroyed death. If the devil has no power and we no longer need fear, then something fundamental must have happened to death itself. Through death, death was destroyed. Now here the writer only hints at how Jesus' death has done that. There'll be more to come over coming chapters, but we do see here in verse 17, Jesus dies as a propitiation for the sins of the people. What does that mean? That that means as a sacrifice to deal with the presence and with the punishment of sin. That's how he deals with death. He, He gets rid of what sat behind it, sin. He wipes away the source and lets the punishment land on himself. The son's suffering way, it's death destroying. Death destroyed death. In our society, I think a lot of storytellers know this to be true. It's like a deep truth sewn into the fabric of life that they, they just have to tap into. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to ruin any films or stories, but there are just loads with people dying to bring life, aren't there? Just cast your minds over some of the great stories you know, great films you've watched, books you've read, and you'll probably think of, I don't know, that, that moment in one where the, the main hero comes to crunch time. They realize for them to save people, they need to die, and time seems to slow. It's always slow motion at that point, isn't it? People go, no. And, and, then, and then it happens. That their, their death bringing life to others. There's something deeply awful, and yet deeply right about it. We know it's the way it should work. And that's because they are just a shadow of what Jesus did. Jesus died to bring life, but it wasn't just temporary life. Life for for us then to die. He died so that he might bring many sons to glory. He died so that death might not have a hold on us. It's like he, as he died, he grabbed us in his arms and he pulled us not out of death, but through it. That as we die, we are brought through it by him. It's amazing. The son's suffering, it's death destroying. Through his death, he disarmed and and will finally destroy the devil through it as well. Do you know, if you are a follower of Christ, if you're holding on to him, the devil has no power over you. He can't use sin and death over you. He can't accuse you. He can't pull you down saying, I don't know, you're not loved, saying you're on a hiding to nothing, saying, what's the point? You're just going to die anyway. Christ's death is like a giant mute button. Rather than the accusations and the lies kind of deafening us, pouring into our ears and hearts, it's, it's instead as if the devil's on mute. He might be shouting, but but we can't hear him. His words have lost power. Why? Because Jesus has destroyed death. But for some of us, death might hang heavily over our hearts. For some of us, there might be a real fear of it. And perhaps for you, it's because of what sits behind it, ahead of it. We know death 
really is when we meet our maker. When our sins sit before us. When we face judgment on what we've done. But you know, death doesn't need to hold that weight over you. If Christ has died for you, then he's freed you from that fear. The punishment is taken, sins wiped away. He's tasted death for us. Instead of us, death is destroyed. Yes, we will all die at some point, but it doesn't sit there as a final punishment anymore with, with wrath ahead. Christ has gone through it. He is crowned with glory and honor. What a stunning truth. The Son's suffering way is the saving way. It's God-purposed. It's family-focused. It's death-destroying. And that means our salvation isn't shifting. It's not like a hill of sand that collapses and moves under our weight. No, it's a mountain of granite. We have a, a founder of our salvation. We have a pioneer, one who's gone before us and so brings us with him. One who was made lower than the angels even tasting death so that he might bring us through it to honor and glory. That means whatever comes our way in this life, whether joys or persecution, we can have confidence in the future. It's nothing to do with us, but all to do with the Son, to do with Jesus, who went to that length to save his people. In the midst of difficulty and pain, that the, the world to come awaits us. These momentary trials achieving our, our weighty eternal glory, as Paul puts it. Following the Son himself. And that means we can keep going. Perhaps for you at the moment, I don't know, it's ill health or it's, it's family difficulties. Each day feels hard. Well, know that the world to come is secure. So keep going. We, we, we die with Christ that we might live with him. And to finish, if, if you're not a Christian here this evening, perhaps for you the future does loom large or perhaps you're just avoiding even thinking about it but either way it doesn't have to be like that there is one who's destroyed death who loves his family like a brother who's purposed by God himself and he offers to you salvation he offers to you forgiveness sins wiped away restoration to God and life after death with him life in the world we want but don't have I urge you to accept him. Because the son's suffering way is the saving way. Amen.